Welcome to Inside the Criminal Mind Podcast, where we analyze some of the most notorious criminal cases with psychology and criminology combined. Here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to be looking at the toolbox killers. Before we get started, if you want to support our podcast, make sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss any future podcasts. These two individuals is a tandem. They're actually sexual homicide sadistic killers. You can be, that's how they can be classified. During the last year of his incarceration in California men's colony at San Luis Obispo, Roy Lewis Norris met Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker, B-I-T-T-A-K-E-R. Both inmates had an extensive history with the law that involved a substantial amount of violent criminal activity. We'll look at their background a little bit. As the relationship developed, the two discovered several topics of mutual interest dominating, torturing, and raping women. They also shared the attitude that with any future sexual assaults on women, they would leave no witnesses. Bittaker was released in November of 1978, Norris in January of 1979. After their reunion, the duo decided to fulfill their prison ambitions. The first thing they needed was the proper vehicle. So Bittaker found a 1977 GMC cargo van with a sliding door and no windows on the side. Unfortunately, perfect for pulling up close and grabbing their victims. Bittaker and Norris felt well prepared after spending the first half of 1979 outfitting the van with a twin-size mattress supported by wood and plywood, tools, clothes, and a cooler. They had carefully selected a remote area in the San Gabriel Mountains above the city of Glendora. It was a gated fire road that Bittaker secured with his own lock, added insurance that they would be left undisturbed. In addition, they had picked up more than 20 hitchhikers not attacking any of them, but simply rehearsing for the right day. The right day came on June 24, 1979, at least four other times between June and October 31st of that same year. Bittaker and Norris were responsible for at least five murders. So let's take a look at one of them. Lucinda Schaefer, age 16, lived with her grandmother in Torrance, California. She was an attractive girl who was active with her church. She attended a fellowship meeting on June 24th at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. She had decided to leave early and walk home along Pacific Coast Highway instead of calling her grandmother for a ride. This immediately puts her into what we call a medium to high risk level. Bittaker spotted her. This is not to blame her, folks. But we have to understand, uh, perpetrators are looking for certain targets. And there's low risk, medium risk, and high risk victims. Uh, victims who put themselves into situations, whether because that's their career choice, uh, by accident, whatever it may be, they get to different levels. And at this point, she's raised her risk level just a tad bit. Now, the other thing is you're looking at, too, is the risk levels that the perpetrators will take. If they take somebody during the day, that's a high risk level. If it's somebody at night in an obscure area, a remote area, uh, that's going to be low risk levels. Back to the story. Bittaker spotted her making the comment, there's a cute little blonde. The van pulled alongside her, and Norris asked her if she wanted to go for a ride and smoke some marijuana. She refused and kept on walking. Unfortunately, that didn't work. Eventually, they waited for her at the end of the sidewalk. When she had reached him, the two exchanged words. Norris then grabbed her and dragged her to the van. The van squealed out, and Bittaker turned the radio up to mask Cindy's screams. Norris taped her mouth and bound her hands and feet as they drove to the fire road. This is an example of an organized killer. They're organized killers that already have equipment, which a lot of times you'll see that with organized killers. They're going to have their uh, tape. They're going to have their um, ropes whatever need to restrain that individual. 
Once they arrived, Bitteker and Norris smoked some pot while asking Cindy questions about her family and boyfriend in Wisconsin. Interesting here, they're trying to get personal with her. So again, this is another fantasy that they're living through. After they grew bored, Bitteker and Norris took turns raping her. Next, Norris attempted to strangle Cindy, but lost his nerve. And this is interesting, because this is early on in their killing, when he saw the anguished look in her eyes. So he, something felt there. So Norris might not necessarily be a psychopath. I'm not totally sure. We'll continue reading the story. Bitteker took over until Cindy collapsed to the ground. Bitteker remarked that it took more to strangle someone than television showed. Norris agreed. Eventually, they took a coat hanger around her neck with a pair of vice grip pliers until she was finally dead. Then they did something interesting. What they did is they wrapped her body with a blue shower curtain so the blood from the hanger cutting into her neck would not get on the van's carpet. So again, removing the evidence and dumped her body over the side of a deep canyon. And you might say, well, that's a smart thing to do. Well, this is just an example of an organized killer. A disorganized killer would not do that. Bitteker and Norris were against, again stalking victims on the Pacific Coast Highway on July 8th when they spotted Andrea Joy Hall, 18 years old, hitchhiking. Again, unfortunately, a high-risk victim. She was picked up by Bitteker and at his urging, Andrea obtained a drink from the cooler in the back of the van, at which point Norris made his move to subdue her. Andrea's assault, which was much like Cindy's with the exception, she was photographed. Now what happens is we're introducing souvenirs for her killers to recall the look of terror on her face to be able to sexually satisfy themselves later on. At this point, Bitteker and Norris were becoming much more comfortable with the crime to experiment with torturing their victims verbally and then physically. Andrea had an ice pick jabbed into her brain. The next two victims, 15 and 13 year olds, so they're not dropping down in age. The girls have been walking and hitchhiking again. They entered the van voluntarily, but became uneasy when the van turned away from the beach and headed for the mountains. As Leia, the 13-year-old, attempted to open the door, the Norris struck her over the head with a bat. Bitteker stopped to help Norris subdue the two girls and then headed to San Dimas. The 15-year-old and the 13-year-old were held for nearly 48 hours before they were tortured and murdered. Norris took approximately 24 pictures of them engaged in various sex acts. She was then, again, stabbed through the ear and strangled. Norris claims that the... Lamp, the 13-year-old, was not sexually assaulted before he savagely battered her head with the sledgehammer. He wanted, he remarks, he wanted to stay a virgin. Now you can die a virgin. With this torture session as well as the next one, Bitteker and Norris decided to preserve their exploits by using a tape recorder. Again, the souvenir aspect to recall these fantasies later. Uh, Shirley, Shirley Ledford was the last seen, was last seen hitchhiking on October 31st, 1979. After Bitteker and Norris picked her up hitchhiking, they enacted the assault differently this time. Instead of heading for their spot in the mountains, they opted to drive around the streets of San Fernando. She was struck on the elbows repeatedly with a three-pound sledgehammer. Bitteker decided Ledford was not screaming loud enough to suit him, so he retrieved a pair of pliers and tortured her. So you can see it's escalating. The violence is now escalating for these two individuals. So as you can say, it's almost desensitizing them. Review of the victimology in this case can show you several points that are common to sadistic murder committed by organized offenders, as I mentioned earlier, that the victims were targeted because they suited the preferences of these two individuals. All the victims are white females, so we have a, a common profile with a narrow age range and unknown to the offenders. They're all strangers, which has actually increased over the last 30 years in regards to uh, homicides. Still one of the least amount. Usually it's acquaintances, uh, but uh, and then comes a... Uh, uh, things significant others like husbands and wives. Anyway, back to this. And considered uh, they were narrow age range unknown to the offenders, and they also were high risk victims because they were hitchhiking. 
The only one that was not was Schaefer, the last one, which was not hitchhiking, but walking along the highway, which elevated her risk again as a victim. Some of the crime scenes will give us information as well. They were carefully, carefully planned defenses, as we know. They reflected overall control, not only in their restraints, but also in conversation. Bitteker derived enjoyment from engaging victims in conversation that he governed. He used the conversation as a means of torture in itself, making victims plead for their lives, substantiated his sense of domination, which probably implies that he felt weak. He felt like he was out of control of his life. So that leads us to now his childhood. So let's look at Bitteker and Norris's childhood. Bitteker was born in Pittsburgh in 1940. He was the unwanted child of a couple who had chosen not to have children. Bitteker was placed in an orphanage by his natural mother and was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bitteker. So if he had this information as he was growing up, you can see that he's already got an issue with attachment, a sense of belonging, a sense of being wanted in this world. He was just tossed into this world and nobody wanted him except for this adopted family. So let's see what happened there. Bitteker's adopted father worked in the aviation industry, which required the family to frequently move. Bitteker was first arrested for shoplifting at the age of 12 and obtained a minor criminal record over the next four years. So now we have a setup for a conduct disorder, which is antisocial behavior, and we could possibly have antisocial personality disorder or a psychopath. Bitteker would later claim his numerous theft-related offenses committed throughout his adolescence have been attempts to compensate for the lack of love he received from his parents. Which is true, a lot of times they try to compensate. So he's obviously a smart guy. How do I know that? Because he has a reported IQ of 138. He's also pretty in tune on his own upbringing. Bitteker considered school to be a tedious experience and dropped out of high school in 1957. By this stage in his adolescence, he and his adoptive parents were living in California. Within a year of dropping out, he had been arrested for car theft, hit and run, and evading arrest. So you can see a lot of criminal activity early on, which definitely would signify a psychopath. For these offenses, he was imprisoned at the California Youth Authority, where he remained until he was 18 years old. Upon release, Bitter discovered his adoptive parents had disowned him and had relocated to another state. He would never see his adoptive parents again. Now, he was born in 1940. And you got to remember, the killing started uh, in 1981, so he was about 41 years old, but he was I didn't out of prison quite a bit. So something happened in that time frame. We don't know what happened in, those, in the 1980s. That triggered him and maybe uh, talking to Norris motivated him to do these commit these excessive crimes. So let's look at Roy Norris. Norris. Roy Norris was born in Colorado in 1948. So he was actually eight years his younger to Bitteker. Uh, so when he started committing these crimes, he was about 32. Norris was conceived out of wedlock. His parents had married to avoid the social stigma surrounding illegitimate birth. Norris's extended family lived within a short distance of his parents' home due to his grandfather's real estate investments. His father worked in a scrapyard, and his mother was a drug-addicted drug addicted housewife. He occasionally lived with his parents throughout his childhood and adolescence, but was repeatedly placed in the care of foster families throughout the state of California, Colorado. Norris's childhood recollections were interspersed with memories of wrongful accusations while living with his biological parents and of being neglected by many of the foster families he lived with, frequently being denied sufficient food or clothing. He also claimed to have been sexually abused when in the care of a certain family, later stating the prejudice he held towards particular people. Actually, he was, uh, sorry, he was in the care of a Hispanic family, and he looks like he held prejudice towards Hispanic people. Um, while living with his parents at the age of 16, Norris visited the home of a female relative who was in her early 20s and began speaking to her in a sexual, sexually suggestive manner. She ordered him to leave her house and informed Norris's father, who threatened to subject, 
threatened to subject him to a beating. Uh, Nora subsequently stole his father's car and drove to the Rocky Mountains where he attempted to commit suicide. Now you can see Norris is a lot more fragile mentally. Um, so obviously whatever, the, the uh, same thing here, lack of attachment, lack of love, lack of security being shifted back and forth from your biological parents to foster care families, that's going to cause a lot of insecurity, a lot of uh, the, what they call um, bad attachment here for Norris. Actually, insecure attachments, what they call it. Uh, this is going to cause him a problem because you can tell he doesn't want to be here. He believes nobody wants him. After this, he was later apprehended as a runaway and returned to live with his parents. Upon his return, Norris's parents informed him that he and his younger sister were unwanted children and they intended to divorce when both reached adolescence. Again, this is not now Norris is feeling like I don't even belong in this world, they don't even want me. Uh, so it's really affecting him here. This is not to justify it, but just to explain it. So we need to know what these indicators are so we can help other individuals in the future to mitigate and reduce this amount of violence. Later, Norris dropped out of school, joined the Navy. He was stationed in San Diego, was deployed to Vietnam in 69. So he was about 21, although he did not see active combat. Uh, first offenses were in 1959. In August, uh, he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment for transporting a stolen vehicle. So he was 21. So when he came out of the Navy to be served in the, uh, in August 59, I'm sorry, he was 11, where he served uh, 18 months. Well, that was Bitteker. My fault, folks. My fault. So Bitteker, at the age of 19, was sentenced to 18 months in prison. Let me find out uh, Norris's here. So Norris was arrested the first time in November of 1969 uh, for... Um, known sexual offenses. He was 21. He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. This is 20, oh, about no, 11 years before they started on their killing rampage. He had attempted to force his way into the car of a lone woman. Three, well, three months later, in February of 1970, Norris attempted to deceive a lone woman into allowing him to enter her home. When the woman refused, he attempted to break into her house. The woman phoned the police who arrested Norris. So Norris was trying to you can see here, is that a retaliatory type of rapist? Is that an anger rapist? He's what they call probably a power reassurance rapist. He just wants to feel adequate because he feels inadequate because he doesn't try to hurt her in a really bad physical way. But um, so he tries to deceive her. This is a classic example of that power reassurance. Less than three months after this, Norris was diagnosed by a psychologist with a severe schizoid personality. He was given an administrative discharge. Now, I'll give you a little background. Schizoid personality disorder uh, used to be, well, it's a personality disorder, and it's, a, it's characterized by a lack of interest in social relationships, tendency towards solitary, sheltered lifestyle, emotional coldness, detachment, and apathy. So we can see possibly here schizoid personality disorder with Norris, very likely. I mean, they obviously saw him. I didn't. Uh, affected individuals may be unable to form intimate attachments to others and simultaneously possess a rich and elaborate but exclusively internal fantasy world. Uh, other associated features include stilted speech, a lack of deriving enjoyment from most activities, so they have anhedonia, uh, inability to tolerate emotional expectations of others. A lot of these characteristics we see with a lot of different serial killers, actually, don't we? Norris was released from the state hospital in 1975 with five years probation. Having been declared by doctors as an individual who's of no further danger, 
Those risk assessments aren't always that accurate, especially not 45 years ago. Just three months after his release, Norris approached a 27-year-old woman walking from a restaurant in Redondo Beach and offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she declined, Norris parked his motorcycle and grabbed the woman's scarf, twisting it around her neck, before informing her he intended to rape her and drag her into the nearby bushes. Fearing for her life, life the woman did not resist. The rape was reported to police. They were initially unable to find the perpetrator. However, one month later, the victim observed Norris's motorcycle and noted the license number. Norris was arrested for the rape, and one year later he was tried and convicted for this offense. And this is where eventually he met Bitteker, and we talked about that. He ended up uh, killing five. I think that's what they could, we'll find out what they were convicted with. So here, psychologically, you can see the differences between these individuals. Both came from unloving homes. Both uh, grew up in a world where they weren't wanted. At least that's how they perceived it, for sure. And more than likely, it was. Uh, I'm assuming sexual abuse was probably prevalent. It wasn't necessarily in both cases. Uh, Norris does say that he was, but I wouldn't be surprised. Some other interesting things about the case, Lucinda Schaefer and Andrea Hall's remains were never found. Partial remains of Gilliam and Lamp, the young ones, 15 and 13, including their battered skulls, were found. Gilliam still had the ice pick in her ear. Shirley, Shirley Ledford's uh, autopsy revealed that death was due to strangulation. There was evidence of multiple blunt force trauma to the face, head, and breasts, which again, this here you can see there's incredible anger being depicted. And usually when that happens, there's usually a disorganized killer here. So I'm not really sure exactly. You know, sometimes it can be called a mixed, uh, instead of disorganized and organized, or a mixed. So they have a little bit of both. Uh, Ledford's autopsy report presented similar indicators of an organized sadistic murder as mentioned in possible forensic findings, focused blunt force attack to the genital regions, traumatic insertion of foreign objects. So these were actually uh, organized examples because um, they had clear objectives when they did this trauma. Uh, there were sexual and aggressive acts prior to death and restraints were used. Normally when they're disorganized, they usually the sex comes after death not prior. Um, and they also have a depersonalization, which these two did not show. With depersonalization, either they would beat their face so you couldn't recognize them anymore, or they would put them face down so they couldn't see them. They don't want to interact with the individual. So these are definitely organized killers more so than you mixed. In addition, Norris and Bitteker spent extended periods of time with their victims, which is another sign of organized killers. How do they get caught then? Well, one of the victims who was raped and released identified Bitteker and Norris as her assailants. They were arrested for charges other than the rape murder charges and hoped that one or both would fold under interrogation and confess, and they were right. Norris eventually did, of course, he was mentally unstable, shifting the blame to Bitteker in an attempt to save himself. The motive for Bitteker and Norris's brutal murders is perhaps best explained by a forensic psychiatrist, Ronald Markman, who examined the offenders. He described them both as sociopaths who knew right from wrong, but simply did not care. Now, I can, I have not seen both of them. I can definitely see the psychopathic traits from Bitteker. Norris, I'm not convinced, but a sociopath, possibly. Now, sociopaths and psychopaths are different. Sociopaths tend to be more um, emotionally unstable than a psychopath, much more violent. So he could have been the one that was committing most of the violence. Norris did plead guilty in five counts of murder, turning state's evidence against his friend. In return for his cooperation, he received a sentence of 45 years to life with parole possible after 30. Bitteker denied everything in his trial. He testified that Norris first informed him of the murders after their arrest in 1979. A jury chose to disbelieve him, returning a guilty verdict. 
the judge imposed an alternate sentence. Whitaker was sentenced to death. The judge imposed an alternate sentence of 199 years to take effect in the event that Whitaker's death sentence was ever commuted to life imprisonment. So where are these two individuals today? Well, Whitaker didn't go down without a fight. He granted several death row interviews following his 1981 conviction. He never expressed any remorse, which is a classic sign of a psychopath, repeatedly stating the only remorse he felt had been for the fact that he and Norris were arrested. Despite the fact Norris considered his life to have been a wasted one, he also marveled that he and Norris had little in common before their acquaintance. While incarcerated, Bittaker filed more than 40 frivolous lawsuits over issues as trivial as being served a broken cookie and crushed sandwiches, which is very common, again, by psychopaths. And he might have been a borderline personality disorder as well. They tend to do this a lot, a lot get involved in a lot of litigation. So we could see this as well as a combination of what's called comorbidity. So he could have been psychopathic and have borderline personality disorder. Bittaker died while incarcerated on death row at San Quentin on December 13, 2019, literally six months ago at the age of 79. Norris was incarcerated at the Richard J. Donovan. He actually died four months, three months ago, February 24th. He died of natural causes. Since his conviction, Norris repeatedly claimed the sole reason he participated in the murders was out of fear of Bittaker. Norris also claimed to have twice contemplated confessing to his and Bittaker's responsibility. Could be a psychopath. Psychopaths do lie. Again, I don't know all the, I'm not privy to all the information, uh, so it's very possible. Although Norris readily admitted that he enjoyed the actual intercourse with the victims, he claimed only Bittaker enjoyed the acts of torture and murder. I did enjoy the killing. Now, according to this, could be true. Like I mentioned earlier, he did have a problem when he looked at the very first victim that they captured and he couldn't kill her because when he was looking into her eyes, this is where I don't think he necessarily falls into that sociopath, psychopath mentality. Um, he could have maybe you know, the low end of the psycho psychopathy um, gradients, uh, where they call it, they have on different levels on the continuum. So he could be on the low end of the continuum. To some degree, but again, I'm not sure he's a full-blown psychopath like Bittaker, or at least not high on the continuum with a score of about 30 or above when you do the uh, psychopathy checklist. That's how they measure the level of, or the degree of psychopathy for an individual. Norris even says, I didn't enjoy the killing. That was Lawrence. It was his favorite part, watching the women struggle to live. Uh, both investigators and psychologists, though, disagree with Norris, saying that he derived extreme gratification from the domination, abuse, and torture inflicted. These respective parties have also harked towards Norris's extensive history of physical and sexual violence against women prior to his meeting Bittaker and his repeated instances of denial of culpability for his actions. So again, tough, difficult to say. I wasn't there. Um, I'm guessing it's probably on the lower end of the continuum for psychopathy. Just like was uh, Bittaker was on the higher end. Uh, now they claim sociopathy. These were terms are interchangeable for some people. Uh, nowadays they created the distinction over the last decade or less. Uh, these cases were almost 20 years ago when they were uh, in front of the investigators and the psychiatrists. More than 20 years ago. I'm sorry, they were 30 years ago. So back then, even the distinctions were more blurry between those two: psychopathy and sociopathy. Uh, Stephen Kay, the prosecutor at Bittaker's trial, said he still considers the murders committed by Bittaker Norris as being the worst criminal case he has ever prosecuted or encountered and remained insistent in his belief that to, prior to Bittaker's death via natural causes, he had been more deserving of being executed than any other inmate incarcerated in California's death row. The chief investigator of the murders 
committed by Bitteker and Norris. Paul Bynum committed suicide in 1987. He was 39. In a 10-page suicide note, Paul Bynum specifically referred to the murders committed by Bitteker and Norris as haunting him and of his fear that they may be released from prison. The audio cassette Bitteker and Norris created of themselves raping and torturing Ledford, one of the young girls, remains in the possession of the FBI Academy. This recording is now used to train and desensitize FBI agents to the raw reality of torture and murder. So there you go, folks. Really powerful stuff into this story. Um, difficult to read, difficult to, to process. No doubt about that. Uh, people can do this. But again, if you're a psychopath, it's completely understandable. Their empathy is gone. And even in the brain organically, we can see it on fMRIs. They tend to have a underdeveloped, underactive prefrontal cortex where we make our moral decisions, where we anticipate consequences, where we empathize, and they don't usually have that. Actually, not anyone that I know have it. There's been a lot of studies now on the minds of psychopaths uh, done by Professor Kent Keel, and it shows that they're underdeveloped and underactive prefrontal cortexes. So neurologically, neuroscience explains a lot of why they are like this and what makes them so dangerous. That's it for today. Thanks for listening.